Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Joined this week for the weekly update with Brandon Monroe. We talk about Kazatomprom's earnings results. They used a nuanced and quite careful language in here, but we try and interpret what it could mean, what it may mean for the market, and indeed if they're in violent agreement with Cameco's statement last week on their quarterlies. Enjoy the podcast. Brandon, how are you doing, sir? I'm well. How are you, Matt? Very good. Been a long, long week. It feels like a long week. Now, usually we've had a really good run of it for the past six weeks. This week's been quite boring by comparison. Still good, but a bit boring by comparison. Well, I think we needed to breathe it, didn't we? We needed to consolidate and think about all of these things that have happened in the uranium sector. And this was a week to do it. Time to think and reflect and think think about our attitude to the uranium space. Well, the the one thing that did happen this week, has Prom um, made a few statements. and I want to talk to you about those. There's some, some points they made, which I think are quite important. What, what's your overall view, first of all? Where we're at in the uranium sector? Mm. Yeah, so I think it's still very positive. We've got uh, a number of supply curtailments. So for any of the viewers joining us for the first time, we've had a range of supply curtailments. And even Kazatomprom acknowledged in their report that came out this week that that's going to be at least a 10% disruption to 2020 uranium production, which uh, according to my numbers is already working off quite a substantial deficit. And we haven't seen any of those curtailments really start to uh, emerge in any substantive way. Uh, In Namibia, we've seen a relaxation of a number of the different uh, lockdown requirements, but we're only just starting to see the mines get back into a semblance of normal production. So that's right at the beginning of getting back into it. And uh, I still believe that they're going to struggle to hit their production targets for the next couple of months at least. So there's a fair hole in production that's been punched into Namibia, the fourth largest uranium producer in the world. Cigar Lake is still down, and as we know, that's going to be down for quite some time. And there's been a number of outbreaks in nearby communities, uh, one of which was even acknowledged on the Cameco earnings call last week. And so that's really given a lot of reason for contemplation and, and created a pause in the thinking of many people who thought that perhaps Cigar Lake was going to come back on sooner rather than later. And the associated publicity around those very tragic outbreaks in those remote communities that neither have the infrastructure capacity to deal particularly well with this type of a crisis and also have a large component of Indigenous residents who are expected to be particularly susceptible to a virus like this. That, that's created a lot of publicity, which will just, again, give Cameco further reason to make sure that they put the health of their workers, their families and their communities first before any desire to bring that mine back on in a hurry. And then, of course, in Kazakhstan, we've still got the production disruption wearing on and speaking to colleagues in Kazakhstan during the week, 
uh, everyone's still working from home. So as we stand at the moment, there's no sign of that coming to an end. Well, let's let's talk about Kazatom Prom because there's some statements which were, I think, give you so carefully crafted. Uh, every word is important, um, and I've got nine here for you to go through. I think, and I think it's worth worth doing that. Um, so, Kazat, they said um, we will not make up the tonnage after COVID nineteen. What are the implications of that, and why would they not do that? Yeah, so for the listeners, these uh, comments have come from an interview that uh, Mr. Permatov, the CEO of Kazatomprom, gave to UXC. And what's great for everyone out there is Kazatomprom have put it on their website. So it's in the public domain. It's not just UXC subscribers who've got access to this information. It's well worth a read two or three times because I think it does make a few very important statements. So yes, they've confirmed in the interview and they reiterated this point in their results that came out a couple of days ago that they will not seek to make up the lost production. And in their results, they also said that 2021 production will remain at 20% below their targeted production, which is the production that they commit to under their subsoil use contracts, which is the Kazakh equivalent of a mining license. So it's important for two reasons. One is there was some thoughts amongst either hopeful people on the buy side of uranium or the more bearish commentators in this sector that, ah, you know, so what? They go down a little bit. They'll just bring all of that production straight back. And by the end of the year, it'll all be filled in and it'll be back to normal. Well, they've absolutely made it clear that they won't be doing that. Now, what lies below that decision? I th- I find particularly interesting. On the one hand, uh, it's going to be tough for them at the best of times to get production back in. And they've got 22,000 people that they're going to need to get back to work or and get back to their wellhead developments, plus contractors and so on. It's no mean logistics feat working across a big country, diverse sites, uh, it's just a difficult thing at the best of times to get, once they're able to, to get all of these mines back to production. And we'll probably talk in a moment about it, but there's a lag associated with in situ recovery mining. It's not like an open pit mine where as soon as you start putting material through the processing plant, X days later, you've got it coming out the other end as product. Uh, there's uh, quite a cycle involved in in situ recovery. But the other thing, apart from just the logistics and the difficulty of doing it, is I don't think they would want to put those pounds back into the market. Uh, They've been committed to a market-centric approach and they've had to beat that drum for a few years because there was a lot of well-founded scepticism, I think you could say, about their market-centric approach as they started to tell the world that that's what they were on about. Then they listed. Then they started making commitments to the London Stock Exchange, which they've by and large kept. And they've stayed out of the spot market. Uh, Again, much to the skeptical uh, skepticism of many people here. So they have shown discipline on the sales side. They have shown a market centric uh, approach. And they haven't to date been able to reduce their production by any more than the 20% reduction. And that's just a feature of the subsoil use contract regime in Kazakhstan. 
it, they're allowed to go within a corridor either 20% above or 20% below what they say for each of those assets they're going to produce over the life of mine. The moment they go outside of that corridor, they've effectively got to renegotiate those subsoil use contracts with the government. And, you know, it's still quite a bureaucratic environment and nobody, even if you are 85% owned by the sovereign wealth fund of the country, you still just don't want to go down that path. And in the impression that I certainly have got over the last year or so talking to executives at Kazad and Prom is that they've gone to the, minim, uh, the minimum production that they can without going outside that corridor, but they wish they could do more. And now that wish has been granted. Okay. Well, let, let, let's talk about partners who, um, who need the pounds which are produced by Kaz Atomprom because it affects their bottom line, affects their ability to deliver against contracts. And then let's talk about that sovereign wealth fund because they are all in a very difficult place at the moment. So um, let's start, start with the, the, like the Camcos and Aranas of this world, please. So Kazakh production is very important to Cameco, Urano, and, and in particular, Uranium One. It's become more important to Cameco and Urano as they've lost two other flagship assets. First of all, MacArthur River that Cameco put into care and maintenance almost two years ago, and Urano had a minority share in that asset as well, and a minority uh, right to production. And now, of course, with Cigar Lake being put into indeterminate care and maintenance, again, with Urano having a substantial minority share of production, they've, Cameco has lost all of its primary production. And what remains is its minority share in the Inkai joint venture, which is a 40% production share. So as that production starts to deplete, Cameco will lose its last uh, source of primary production. And we heard them talk about that last week on their call, and they've obviously got a strategy for that, which involves acquiring pounds in the market and from other sources. Arano equally, they're tapering down their production in Niger. They expect to close Cominiac next year and it's already reduced production. So they were counting on the pounds that they were getting out of Kazakhstan. And Uranium One is these days almost entirely responsible to Kazakhstan for obtaining its pounds. So that puts them all in quite an awkward position and it puts Kazatomprom in a advantage position because they've got a portfolio of assets. Some of them they own outright, most of them they've joint ventured, including to CGN at some is both. But even though production will be reduced, they'll still be getting production from some level of production from all of those assets for at least the next few months. So the question becomes, they've adopted a market-centric view. They've demonstrated the first level of that market, C-centricity or whatever the word is. Uh, how market-centric do they become? How aggressive do they become with their competitors, partners? Um, are they in a position to pull any levers on their partners? Uh, and would they even contemplate doing that? And that's something that will unfold over time. And those effects will very much depend on how long these assets are down for. Will they be down for the three months that Kazadam Prom estimates? Will they come out of lockdown a little bit earlier and they'll be able to retrieve some of that lost production? Or will it stay off for longer? And if it's if, 
it's that scenario where it stays off for longer that I think we'll really see some quite profound effects on the market. And the last bit of that question was, you've got the Sovereign Wealth Fund there, he has a different set of drivers and outside influences, which means that they probably have, uh, diff for different reasons, they want to see pounds being produced. Well, now that's interesting. So yes, you're absolutely right, they do have different drivers. So they're still the 85% shareholder in Kazadamprom. Kazadamprom's been declaring extraordinary dividends in terms of total profit distribution. And one can only assume that that is to meet the requirements of its major shareholder. And those requirements, when you look at the impact that the current oil chaos has had on the overall levels of income through Kazakhstan and in particular their sovereign wealth fund, you would expect that that mouth has just become an awful lot hungrier to feed. But does that mean extra production? Now, ordinarily it would, but uh, what's interesting is if you look at this decision that Kazadamprom has made and you look at what it's done to the spot price and you realise that their revenue is all uh, according to spot, and you can see it from their results, very much tracks the spot price. Their, their profitability has gone up. They're going to lose, by their own estimates, about 20% of annual production. But yet, their margins probably doubled, perhaps even more, as a result of this. So this will be an interesting uh, lesson in commercial reality and markets for their major shareholder. Uh, who might not have been confronted with a situation where they can lose production and yet have their overall levels of profitability go up quite substantially. That's interesting, because I think for people who don't know, um, Kazakhstan is a huge oil and gas uh, country, huge, um, and is very dependent on it. Obviously, with what's going on at the moment, it's been quite disruptive. Um, and I just wondered if you had any thoughts or insight as to the types of conversations that you know could be um, had with a company which is semi-public, well, partially public, I should say. Yeah, look, I don't, I don't think I've got anything that's um, particularly insightful. I don't know um, the people at Kaznaya Samrook. So um, I, I've, I've read a lot about them and uh, there's been quite a lot of comments about their privatisation plans and so on, but when it comes to how they're going to react to this, it'll just be interesting to see and follow. Okay. Um, now, they're obviously using, or talking the language of um, treating this as a force majeure, uh, majeure. Um, what, what is the benefit of them doing that? Does it, does it matter what you label it? So, force majeure, when it comes to their performance under their subsoil use contracts, we should clarify that because they also made it very clear that they won't be calling force majeure on their delivery contracts of uranium to their customers. So being a force majeure under the subsoil use contracts is important because any lost production as a result of this event does not count against them in terms of their commitment to deliver the production volumes under that mining contract plus minus 20% as we've talked about. Uh, the secondary implication of that is it's a once-off opportunity for them to decide or have a degree of control over exactly how many pounds they really wish to produce this year. And the decisions 
as to when to bring this production back on, as we've seen with Cameco, the decision to turn off, they might have had their hand forced by world events and in particular events within the country. But the decision to turn on, <clears throat> well, that's going to turn on a whole bunch of different factors that are ultimately inside the control of the company. So this is an opportunity for them to consider holding off a bit later than they might otherwise do and allowing the market to tighten further, allowing further inventory levels to fall and perhaps testing really effectively how much mobile inventory there really is out there. It's interesting. And they've also talked about being able to honour their existing contracts, which you know, yeah. they're in the lucky position to be able to do so. Do you, th- do you think they're going to be able to do that? And if so, how? Yes, they will. I think they will. And the one piece of information that came out in their results this week is that they forecast or they provided information on what their delivery commitments are. So depending on the scheduling and the timing, it looks like that they will draw down their producer inventory by about 3,000 tonnes of 308. So it's significant infant, uh, significant draw on their inventory. When they first flagged these uh, disruptions, they noted that they had about 8 million pounds of producer inventory, um, which is a bit more than they really wanted, but they do target like Cameco six to seven months mm. of production. So they look like they're gonna draw that down to about where they want it to. And that's reminiscent, I suppose, of when Cameco initially put MacArthur, uh, MacArthur River onto uh, 10 month care and maintenance when they furloughed their workers and they decided that they'd work off inventories for a period of time. And they stated that they've got the capacity to draw further on those inventories. Okay, but they, they talked about having sufficient inventories to meet short-term, short-term lost tonnage. But it comes back to that word which I think Cameco used, which was indeterminate. You know, how long can this go on for? It's easy to sit back and start looking at a situation in a country and estimate how long the first wave is going to go for. And we've been doing that in Australia, for example, looking at Olympic Dam, you know, South Australia's had one new COVID-19 case in 10 days. So they've been extremely effective. Western Australia hasn't had a case in a week. So those two states which border each other in Western Australia have been very effective at flattening the curve, but it's for the first phase. Australia can probably hold out by closing its borders and maybe opening them with our cousins in New Zealand. But we could hold out for quite some time by doing that. We're a reasonable sized, reasonably self-sufficient country. Um, The question becomes, can Kazakhstan realistically do that? Uh, Which is going to be a lot harder uh, for a start. You don't have hard borders in Kazakhstan like we do as an island continent in Australia. But also those routes of trade, particularly into China and Russia, are extremely important for Kazakhstan. So what none of these mines want is successive disruptions. They don't want to reopen their uh, production. And in the case of ISR, start building wellhead development. And then a few weeks later, have to retract all of their workers, send them home again, um, reduce production down because there's a second wave of infections. And that's the big unknown in this whole equation, both for Zadamprom, but also for Cameco. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. But 
I guess what I'm puzzled by is like they're, they're talking about disruption being, um, so production being disrupted until 2021 in terms of obviously what they know today. And what, and you know, you've, I think you've, you've talked about implication of maybe, you know, as much as 20%. It's it's hard to call that. It's hard to sort of interpret what that could mean outside of Kazakhstan, isn't it? I mean, how certain can they be? Well, like they say, I don't think they can be certain at all. Um, the comment about 2021 is quite interesting. So on the UXC interview, Mr. Permatov said that he, he avoided a, being specific on answering a question about what will the impact be on 2021 production. But what he did do is point out that the way that an in situ recovery mine works is that it's the wellhead development that I'm doing this week that's going to produce production in several weeks to even months time from today. Uh, Because you've got to, first of all, build injection wells, then you've got to build extraction wells, then you've got to link it all up. Then you've got to acidify the ore body, which takes quite some time, depending on the permeability and how much organics are in the ore body, et cetera, et cetera. And only then can you start operating the extraction well in the middle to start sucking this uh, pregnant acid out of the ore body and take it to the production plant. So two implications. The first one is, even though they made the decision a month ago, they're probably only now starting to feel the production decrease because as per my example it was the wellhead development that they were doing a few months ago that's giving them the production over the last few weeks and it will be different for different assets the bigger mines that can have much bigger wellhead configurations and a longer cycle in their wellhead development and planning they will continue to produce at full production for longer but equally The second point that I wanted to make is the wellhead development that they can do once the disruption stops and once they can get back to work, that will have a long lead time in terms of creating new production. And again, the bigger the asset and the bigger the wellhead configuration, the longer it's going to take for that to then produce. So Kazdatum Prom will have a schedule as to how long that's going to take and presumably they'll have some planning. And once this production goes past a certain date, at least some of those assets will start losing production in 2021, uh, simply because by 31 December 2020, they won't be up to full production. And I think what that also leads us to is the realisation once that, if we see that three month period go longer, then that's going to have a disproportionate effect on both the number of pounds hitting the market, but also the mindset of nuclear fuel buyers around the world. Because the penny will then drop for them that not only are they losing production in real time, but they're losing future production as well that is likely at that point to then stretch into 2021. And the timing of that, I think, will be quite interesting in terms of Presumably, because that and Prom is still down in four months' time, we're unlikely to see Cigar Lake back at any time soon as well. So those pennies will probably drop pretty hard for some of the fuel buyers if we see ourselves in that scenario. Okay, and th- this point really got me. We're talking about exploration and development being 
I think the phrase they used was, you know, work would be delayed for some time. Again, whatever that means. But there's a few things that that touches upon. It touches upon, if there's no exploration and development, it, it you know, affects the future. It's, it, you know, you're spending money today to find uranium for tomorrow, okay? But if you're not, if you're disrupt, if you're disrupting that or not just not doing it, you're also reducing your overhead. Do you think, again, coming back to the Sovereign Wealth Fund, they're under any pressure from them to, to reduce spend in this, in this climate um, because they're worried about the contributions coming from Kazatomprom? The, the numbers would certainly suggest that they have been. The capital spend uh, by Kazatomprom has tapered very significantly, like the rest of the industry, I might add, over the last five or six years. And those numbers are in the public domain. So what they were spending last year on exploration and development uh, was circa half of what they were a few years ago. The reasons one would only expect are a combination of a falling uranium price together with the need for dividends from their sovereign wealth fund major shareholder. So how we see that development because of COVID-19, as I say, on the one hand, you might find that they're more flush with money because of higher margins. On the other hand, you might find that the Sovereign Wealth Fund doesn't fully understand the value of investing forward into exploration and development and says, well, that's a rather nice windfall. That'll be rather handy, thank you, because I've seen my oil revenue drop by 80%. Okay, but like... I'll take it. I'm not surprised, but I'd like um, Cameco. The, the language being used here, and I'm just, I'm just saying, looking through all, all of the, these statements, the language is one of a company. And we discussed this you know, way, way back when, on the geopolitical front, etc. You know, can two companies control the pricing in the market? We talked about it a long, long time ago. Do you think the scenario has been created now by which they are going to try and pull all of the levers that they possibly can to affect the spot price? I don't know. Um, I'll tell you what we can say. Whether they knew it before or not, they've suddenly had a bunch of levers thrust into their hands. Whether they're prepared to use it and how they're prepared to use it, and whether they happen to use similar levers at the same time, I think that's all up for debate and it's probably not very useful to speculate on that right now. But the fact is they do have some very impressive levers. And as you say, both Cameco and Kazadamprom have made it pretty clear in their own way that they're in a position to turn these assets back on at a, in a manner and in a timing that's of their choosing. And that came out really clearly from Cameco. And I think you, with Kazadamprom, you always need to read a bit more of the subtext, but that's what we get out of that confirmation that this is a force majeure event under the subsoil use contract. They can bring it on whenever, if they can keep this asset turned off for as long as they plausibly can maintain that this is in the best interest of the health of their workers, their families, their communities and the country. I, I get that, but it's also, it just so happens, the environment which has been created, it's also going to be better for their bottom line if, if the price, spot price returns, and the one sure way of doing that is to kind of clean out the 
mobile inventory in the marketplace. I know we talked about mobile inventory last week, and we'll put links to last week's Cameco discussion below and this article below. But it's it's in both their interest to engineer a scenario where the price the, the price discovery comes back quicker, and with these levers at their disposal, they're the best place to do it, aren't they? Yeah, and. I think we need to be a little bit careful about talking about both of them together. Uh, one thing that I know for an absolute fact is they are both extremely careful not to be seen or con- or even perceived in any way whatsoever to be acting together. And I've been in the room with the key executives and I've seen firsthand that they are extremely careful. So I would be really confident ruling out any form of collusive behaviour and and any form of cooperation or even communication about what might happen. But if you look at them separately, each and both of these companies have got significant levers. There's no doubt about that. But I would say Kazatomprom's levers are a lot stronger. And I'd say that for two reasons. One is they've just got more of the market, of course. Um, But the other one is that they can achieve that objective of holding production back to push a market towards price discovery sooner and at the same time have the secondary effect of inflicting additional pain on their competitors who happen to be joint venture partners. Um, now again, I want to stress, I don't, ha- I, I don't think their strategy is around uh, trying to play a hard competitive game here. Uh, I don't think that would drive their behaviour in any way and I'm not suggesting that. However, that would be a secondary effect of either them having their hand forced and keeping this production off for longer, or them making an active decision to be rather slow to bring this production back. And as far as secondary effects go, well, that's not a bad one to have in your back pocket as a CEO of a dominant producer in a commodity. Indeed. And there's one last group, perhaps won't be so happy. I think both Cameco and Kazatomprom separately have talked about carry trade and the fact that it may now be obsolete. They have indeed. And the comments in this interview that your listeners can access now directly made about the carry trade uh, reflect some of the discussions that you and I have had probably three weeks ago, actually. Um, So for people inside the industry, it didn't come as a particular surprise, but certainly for investors out there, it was an interesting confirmation of some of the points that you and I discussed. So, Kazatomprom said, in, in as many words, that the traders won't have the bread and butter business of the carry trade available for them. Um, as you and I discussed, it was for two reasons. One is that they've found it harder to get access to financiers who will carry the material out, given uncertainties at the moment. Uh, but the other one is to be able to carry pounds forward under the carry trade, they need to buy them in the here and now spot market and then finance them for a period of time, store them for a period of time and then deliver them to the utilities at which point they get their fee. So that material just isn't available. And to have, first of all, the CEO of the world's largest uranium producer telling not only the traders, but the traders' customers that they're going to have a hard time finding material for the carry trade. And then have Grant Isaac, who's the CFO of Cameco, directly endorse those comments refer to them and endorse them and confirm them um, on the call that Cameco had last week, uh, that's pretty telling. And the way that uh, Mr. Permatov 
talked about it is he was saying that the traders are just, just simply going to have to reinvent themselves to be able to maintain relevance. And their role has been quite important in an oversupplied market. They then had to find ways of making a buck off uh, replacing and moving around excess material. And that's not too hard when you've got an oversupplied market and a couple of producers who are who represent most of the bottom tier in terms of production cost, who are happy to just be selling even though uh, the spot price is continuing to fall. Now that we've moved from deficit into what looks to be serious and deep deficit as a result of COVID-19, they won't have that role to play. Their relevance won't be the same in the market. And they'll either have to find much more innovative ways of producing product and producing uh, trades, or they'll need to find another commodity, I suppose. Now, all this is happening whilst there's potentially a sort of deficit in the market. There's a lot less energy being used. But do we know anything about the numbers there? Is it is it meaningful? Was it too early to tell? Uh, it's it's certainly not going to lead to a deficit. We have seen. I think what you're referring to is some of the reports that are starting to put numbers on the demand side. So in other words, what impact has COVID-19 had on short-term nuclear power demand? In the scheme of things, it still is nowhere near meaningful. But just to give you an idea, approximate numbers, uh, EDF has said that their quarter production will be down about 15%. Now, ETF is the nuclear utility in France. So they're a special case because they produce two thirds of France's energy, they're going to have quite a straight line, direct relationship between France's overall energy demand and what they produce as nuclear power. And so that's very much a reflection of the destruction of industrial energy demand while France has been in a lockdown. Uh, it's only one quarter. They've achieved that through rearranging uh, outages and maintenance and so forth. So it may not have directly affected or the impact on the full year might not be as big. And we are starting to see France come out of the lockdown. So open question as to how minus 15 is going to change over the remaining quarters of this year and obviously into next year. But in other markets where nuclear power isn't so dominant, the effects have been a lot less. And that's because nuclear power is a very natural source of energy during a crisis like this. Uh, for a start, all of the power is on site. So unlike say coal or natural gas, there's no supply chain that's at risk. Secondly, the power is paid for because the nuclear fuel was bought and uh, fabricated over the last couple of years. And thirdly, nuclear power plants have a tremendous output per body, per human worker at the plant. And they run like laboratories. They're basically made for social distancing. And they can reduce their workforce quite con uh, considerably through the absenteeism or people uh, shift changes, et cetera, et cetera, as a result of COVID-19 and still run at full production. So they're a natural choice to just keep chugging along. So in the US where they represent about a quarter of US energy output, uh, we've seen them drop a couple of percentage points compared to an industrial demand that's dropped significantly more. 
So it's uh, we first we've got the first numbers now that we can play with and start to analyse. But I still think it doesn't go anywhere near being meaningful in terms of a, a reduction in demand. And the most meaningful part of the sector is China, and they've confirmed that COVID-19 has not affected the construction schedule of any of their 14 reactors that they've got under construction, and neither has it affected the production output of any of their nuclear power plants. And in fact, that was a point that Kazadamprom was quite careful to make in their results this week. No, that's, I, think, I think it was a, it was a great announcement, like I say. I think that it's nuanced, very nuanced, compared to Cameco, um, but I think there's an un undercurrent, undercurrent which I think people may interpret. Maybe they'll interpret in different ways. But you know, f for me, I think it feels like a good time to, for them. You know, um, at, at the moment, you know, health and safety aside, I think it's a good moment to maybe try and have an influence in the marketplace, like Cameco are trying to do. But we shall see what what, what goes on. They are good people. These are good people. I used to I used to do I used to uh, be in the oil and gas business in Kazakhstan. When I first went there in 2012, actually, just after the London Olympics, actually, was, I was on a plane full of very happy and jubilant Kazakhs who had won about 12 gold medals in wrestling. And uh, I, got, I met some lovely there people. Weren't, there weren't any fond reenactments in the aisles of the plane on the way back? Well, it's funny you should say that. There was. <laughs> very late on, much alcohol had been drunk and a, uh, a fracker broke out. And the, the cabin crew, who normally, I guess, launched themselves at these people, decided to stand back. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> that, that happened. <laughs> a, a flight, a flight I, 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 was, I couldn't forget. So, uh, yeah, but um, try tackling a, a heavyweight gold wrestling medalist. Wouldn't, wouldn't work, would it? Wouldn't work. Well, the cheering when the plane landed successfully would have been bigger than normal then. <laughs> it, 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 was, it was from where I was sitting. <laughs> um, well, look, th th thanks very much. It's a quiet week, but uh, still nevertheless important and, and moving forward. All the signs are moving forward. So encouraging. They are. They are. And although we've seen the spot price take a little bit of a breather this week and hover at the $34 mark, give or take five cents, uh, that's a natural thing to happen at this point. And what we haven't seen is we haven't seen it retracting by two or three dollars, which in itself is a significant uh, sign as to how much uh, strength and momentum is behind this result of this production disruption and what it's going to do for the spot price over the next couple of months. Right. When, so uh, we won't make predictions on price, but you think it's a fairly natural halt at the moment. And what's it going to take to start seeing that price move again and what's your view on timing not necessarily the number but what's the when it starts to move again because it's had a it's had big move it's from, gone from effectively 24 to 34 in a very short space of time um, because people are excited about you know nuclear fuel working group announcement and I think that was a bit of a letdown obviously COVID has done its thing but is the has the reality of the situation dawned or do you think it's it's much more organic than that what, what's the next step? What's the next thing? Yeah, good question, because there's two realities that matter here. The first reality is the reality of the situation that we've been able to directly observe in terms of what's happened with production disruption. 
And we're only starting to understand what the reality of that situation is because we don't know how long these massive uranium mines are going to be off for. So there's a, a small proportion of the reality of this situation is known at the moment and we'll only know the full extent of it once both of them are turned back on. But the other situation that's so important here is people's perception of how much mobile inventory is out there. And that's the situational reality that will have the biggest effect on the spot price. And the reason why we've taken a pause here is there just hasn't been very much volume. So apparently what I've read is that uh, there was about a million pounds of spot that Cameco moved through the market before making their earnings um, call last week. Uh, probably there hasn't been much of that at all this week. Um, the total pounds through the market last quarter was about 17 million. That was on the whole quarter. And when you look at the average price, most of that material went through before the spot price started to move. So we've seen it take off of still relatively small volumes. And we will know the first realities of that second situation, how much inventory is out there, only when we start to see decent volume on the buy side in the spot market. So to answer your question, what it's going to take and when it could take, it's just a question of when do we see motivated buyers enter the spot market. That's, I think, when we'll start to see the spot price shift again and start moving up again. Yeah, I think that's true. That's the reality of it all. Well, look, we better wrap it up there for the week. Oh, better put a small plug in for the um, Australian IMM Uranium Conference in June. Um, I know, I saw you. You've got a plug there. Well, well done to the organisers. I yeah. think I think you'll be great. <laughs> Don't know about that, but it seems, it seems like a, a nice nice event. A few, a few names people would recognise. Yeah, that's right. So, who's on your panel? It's uh, Treva Cleanbill from Trade Tech. Yeah, we've got Mike Alkin Mike from Alkin. Station Code. I'll give you I'll give you a bonus point for the, if you get the third one. Uh, so they've probably got a uranium participant. Indeed. Um, it's Australian. Oh, Could it you be know. John you Borshov? Know. You know, you know. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Teasing. Uh, yeah, so quite, you know, they've, all three have got very it's different. A good panel, it's a great panel. Sure, you'll bring the best of those numbers out between Trevor and Mike. Yeah, yeah. And then we've got John. We've got John, the other side of the spectrum uh, in terms of the business drivers. But um, yeah, pretty, pretty uh, intimidating. Uh, panel there and me so <laughs> we'll see see how that goes i can't imagine for a moment that any of that intimidation is going to be sent in your direction <laughs> well the intimidate i tell you the intimidating bit it's going to be happening uh between midnight and 2 a.m in the 2 30 a.m in the morning for me and i'm the last panel on so uh if i can restrict myself from having a glass of wine beforehand it it should be fine it should be fine if not, it'll be at least fun. Ah, well, you might have a little bit more empathy for me taking these late-night weekly wrap-ups then from Perth. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, look, buddy, I'll let you go. Thanks very much, and we'll speak to you next week. Yeah, great. Look forward to it. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and, of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.